0: the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus
1: it's that time of the year
0: your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
1: and think about
0: work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature podcast is the speech at your graduation ceremony, Backchat is the party after the after party. And it is a graduation of sorts this month as I'm soon to be joining the features team, so this will be my last backjat for a while at least, never say never. This month, Morocco puts itself on the human evolution map. UK researchers react to this month's election with a collective, wait, what? And how physicists hope to break their own model of how the universe works. I'm Kerry Smith and my all London crew this week features Richard Van Norden.
2: Hi, I edit for Nature House of London.
0: Lizzie Gibney. Hello, I cover physical sciences. And Ewan Calloway.
1: Uh, Hello there. I write about all things living, including ancient humans who once lived.
0: Coming up, some very old fossils, probably homo sapiens. I say probably because Ewan isn't 100% sure and is beginning to wonder whether we should really care too much about the taxonomy anyway. Physicists are bored of the standard model, but what could possibly replace it? Lizzie will be telling us uh, a few ideas that they have later. But before... All of that, let's just barge straight in with the recent UK election. Lizzie and Richard, you were among the millions who stayed up to watch the results and two of the few who actually had to write uh, coherently about it and edit the following day. Uh,
3: Lizzie, just tell us what happened. So, yeah, I had actually planned to get more sleep than I ended up getting. Um, I thought, you know, I'll get up early, but like at six or something and get cracking on my story. But actually, after going to sleep at half past midnight, I woke up half three and the result was so exciting that for a politics nerd like me, I did not go back to sleep. <laughs> Which is great because it meant that we had a story filed nice and early. So it was definitely an upset. Theresa May, UK Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party, had called this election in theory to strengthen her hand on Brexit. So to to put the UK in a better negotiating position and to give her more of a mandate. So basically, she wanted to increase her majority. And at the start of the election, she had something crazy like a 20 point lead or more than that in the polls so it seemed like it was going to be a complete landslide um but what ended up happening was there was a very late surge towards the opposition labor party and over the course of the night it unfolded that actually the conservatives were on track to lose seats and they now have no overall majority and they're in the position where in order to um carry on governing because they they do have um they have the most seats of any party in the house they um, Uh, may have to collaborate with another much smaller party called the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland or form some other kind of deal in order to actually create a government.
0: I don't think I was the only one who had to Google DUP the following morning and just check that I I knew roughly who they were. And we should just confirm for our non-UK listeners that they're a party from Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, as opposed to the Republic of Ireland, which is an independent state from the UK. Did you guys find anything to to say about their views on, on science, research, things that nature cares about, Richard?
2: Well, uh, and I should say that as we're speaking, the nature of the deal between the DUP and the Conservatives isn't very clear. Uh, they do have some rather um, unorthodox outside of the mainstream views, um, but I don't think researchers should be too worried about them. Um, there's one member of parliament who has called the Paris uh, Climate Pact totally pointless and flawed uh, and just has said that he doesn't believe in, in man-made climate change. And a minority of their members, but a a sizable minority, think that creationism should be taught in science classes in schools. And they also have some moral views or religious views, which are very, again, outside of the mainstream. Uh, One is that women should not have access to abortion, uh, which is still the case in Northern Ireland, very much driven by the DUP. And they are also um, pretty non-tolerant towards uh, LGBT rights. So all of this uh, looks, looks pretty worrying and, and some of it looks pretty anti-science. But I just don't think that uh, UK politicians are going to let any of this um, pollute, I would say, the UK mainstream views. I don't think it's going to have an effect and maybe I'll be eating my words in a week. But uh, it's notable that English politicians have a veto, complete veto over um, English laws. This was something put in uh, by the Conservatives last year. And already um, I've been told by a researcher at Queen's University, Belfast, that the DUP are quite alarmed by some of the press coverage they're getting because they're not used to the full weight of the UK press coming down on their party, which until now was not remarked on much by the the wider UK. So uh, it's slightly worrying, but I wouldn't overplay that too much. What perhaps is more difficult for researchers to figure out is what on earth does this chaos mean? for british research um and indeed people may be wondering why nature is is covering this politics and of course we do because it will have a huge influence on science um and well the one thing that we think at this early stage may be the case um is that the fact that Theresa may appears to have lost some of her mandate for a very hard sharp split with the european union a hard brexit as it's known could be good news for science because Most researchers in the UK are very worried that Brexit will mean that they will lose some of their funding from the EU, that it will no longer be easy for scientists to go back and forth from the EU to the UK, and that collaborations between the UK and the European Union will suffer, and also perhaps that the European Union itself and its research uh, might be weakened by the loss of the UK. Now, who knows whether we might get some sort of softer Brexit as a result of this chaos. You know, I think scientists are hopeful.
3: The other thing to note is that DUP, obviously being a Northern Irish party, um, they have very strong views on uh, the, the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So one potential implication of Brexit was that there would be what they call a hard border there, which would be really devastating for, um, for many people who have, you know, family just across it. It would cause chaos. It, it essentially works as a complete, like, free flow of people and goods at the moment. So the DUP don't want this hard border, which potentially means then they might have to make sacrifices elsewhere on things that scientists would be happy about, like having more freedom of movement, letting uh, EU scientists come and go. So scientists
0: are hopeful. We're only a week out from this election. Theresa May is humbled, but still in power. She has uh, reshuffled her cabinet. Do you think that's had or going to have any effect on issues that scientists care about? We still have the same science minister, but we have a new environment.
3: Yes, Michael Gove, who has some interesting views on uh, on climate change, has, has at one point, I think, tried to get climate change taken out of the geography part of the curriculum in UK schools. And Michael Gove was also one of those who I think was talking about um, perhaps loosening some of the EU laws that protect wildlife and, and, and some other environmental issues um, as part of Brexit. So the fact that he's now in charge of, of uh, the Department for Environment is uh, potentially any worrying.
1: When he was he was a uh, education minister, he was in he was for Latin being taught in UK schools, so that's good for taxonomy, <laughs> isn't
0: it? <laughs> I, you're as optimistic as most scientists there, I would say, uh, who've who've decided to feel hopeful about this, but on the basis of
3: not too much evidence yet. That's exactly. it. I mean, there is there is definitely this idea that there is more hope than there was before, but we have no idea what's going to happen. That's the fun of Brexit.
0: All right. Well, we're going to leave um, we're going to leave the fun of Brexit for now. And we're going to travel back in time long enough to a group of humans who didn't probably uh, need to care too much about politics. I'm guessing there wasn't much of a political system around uh, 300,000 years ago in Morocco, Ewan. Can you just give us a quick recap of the story you wrote last week on this new fossil find?
1: Yeah. I mean, unless you were sitting under a a science journalism rock, you probably saw some headlines about... Oldest human ever discovered changes the story of our species. Changes, you know, everything. If you missed that, here's here's what happened. Basically, a paper in Nature came out um, from some researchers based in Germany, and they had been excavating a site in in Morocco near its Atlantic coast, near near the city of Marrakesh, and. This site called jebel er uh, we've known about it since the 60s. People found a nearly complete skull there. But they thought the, the skull and the other remains they found were, were really quite young, first 40,000 years, and then maybe, you know, 100, 140,000 years. And the assumption was is that these remains, though, they had some features that were like us, such as kind of a, a delicate face, um, uh, that these these creatures were... They're alive too late to be of much relevance to the origin of our species. Most people think that humans, Homo sapiens, emerged maybe two hundred thousand years ago in the quote-unquote Garden of Eden, possibly East Africa, but definitely Sub-Saharan Africa. The news was is that these researchers redated this site in Morocco. Bada bing, bada boom, it's 315,000 years old. And they found some new fossils that complete the picture of its, of its skull and of its face. And it revealed that in some ways, its face was very much like us. It's a face you would recognize today, one of the researchers told me. Its skull would have held a big brain like ours, but it was uh, differently shaped, more like a torpedo than our round brain. But the, the big news and the, and the reason why everyone is talking about it and the reason why I'm talking about it is that they decided that this skull, these remains, mark the earliest known Homo sapien remains ever. The researchers say that it means our species emerged much earlier than we thought instead of 200,000 years ago, maybe more like 300,000, 400,000, even 500,000 years ago, and that it spread all across Africa to become who we are today.
0: And it's been a bit of an excuse for people to lump all these kind of slightly weird findings that didn't have much context together into a big bag labelled Homo sapiens, question mark?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's kind of what there's been a little bit of controversy is about. Is like we call these things Homo sapiens, these things we found in Morocco and Jebel ar but they don't look like us. You know, they got this torpedo brain, um, which means their brain was probably organised differently to ours. So... Sure, call this Homo sapiens, but it's not what we think of as humans today, which you know just shows you how arbitrary taxonomy can be. We've actually got no good definition for our own species. Carl Linnaeus, the father of uh taxonomy, when he was defining species, uh all he wrote for Homo sapiens was know thyself in Greek. <laughs> So, you know, What a cop-out. Yeah, what a cop-out. So the argument, you know, people have told me is that we need to just throw everything out of the box and start to like put things back in the box a little bit more carefully and build a comprehensive picture of what our species is and what our species isn't. And only with that can we understand what we really want to know is the evolutionary scenarios under which our species emerged. Did it emerge all across Africa in this interconnected ecosystem? The Sahara Desert didn't exist 300,000 years ago. Or did it emerge in a Garden of Eden maybe longer ago than we thought? So these questions are still up there, and these fossils don't really answer them.
0: There's, all, there's always a lot of questions, aren't there, when there are new fossil finds, precisely because fossil finds from our own species or network of possibly related um, creatures who may or may not be from our species, uh, we don't find fossils like that very often. Is it just a dead cert, Richard, that you'd cover a story like this? Do human evolution stories do really well?
2: They do do well. There's just an inherent fascination with our origins and why we evolved the way we did. But yeah, we there's a lot of fossil stories that we don't cover um, because there's a there's this distinction to be drawn between what's stamp collecting, what's a granular addition to the uh to the thousands, hundreds of thousands of fossils that we know about, and what truly um has a remarkable import to it. And I mean, I think that this discovery or redating falls into the latter camp. Sometimes more and more fossils it's gotten very complicated, our story. There are more and more H. Sapiens, H. Neanderthalis. H uh, Haberlis, right? There's a lot of stuff out there, and even the diagrams of these interconnections. Uh, Ewan is grinning at me here. He just he loves this stuff. But even the diagrams of these interconnections, you know that the where one started, where another ended, the geographic range just isn't known and may never be known.
0: You must uh, dream of the day, Ewan, when you can draw a diagram or help one be made that looks a bit more like a flowchart and a bit less like a word cloud.
1: Whenever I do one of these stories. Richard or or my editor was like, "So let's have a tree. What, let's show how all these things are related." And there are trees, they're probably they're they're wrong, they're oversimplified and I kind of want to just I don't want to abandon this idea of a tree, but it's we're never going to have a complete tree. It's a very bushy tree with lots of ends. And a really recent realization I think is that the trees, the branches uh, separate and they come back together when species interbreed. That there are these like archaic things that probably interbred with humans and their genes are living in, in humans alive today. So I think in this mess there are interesting stories that, that emerge and it's an, it's an important one. I mean, it's a story of us.
3: I'm fascinated by how we go about trying to, to build up this complex and diverse picture from lots of individual different bits of evidence that are found over our kind of, you know, recent human history, like how, it must be just incredibly difficult to do. And how often does the the taxonomy or the story get overturned when you have a whole new site?
1: Not as often as the headlines say. Rarely do new fossils change everything. They, they tweak things. Um, you know, they fill in question marks, but... It's only one dot in, you know, a really long journey. And so saying that one little thing changes everything, I think that's that's misrepresenting science and misrepresenting what might have happened.
0: So rarely would one piece of evidence overturn everything, one little tooth or one little piece of um, jawbone. Um, but Lizzie, in fact, physicists would love it, wouldn't they, if they could find one little tiny little crack in their standard model, which would allow them to chuck it in the bin.
3: Absolutely. We are looking for that that deviation um, that will tell us where to go from here. So the standard model is probably what you've heard me talk about before. It's this um, quite succinct and elegant group of equations that describe particles and the ways in which they interact. And um, it's a very accurate, very broad picture of everything in, in everyday life, certainly, um, but we know that it's definitely not the full story. It's a bit like um, you may, you've you got Newton's laws and then they were superseded by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Newton's not wrong, that still works, but actually there's much more going on. So we think that probably there is either um, a whole new theory like that lying underneath the standard model, or we could extend the standard model. But we know that we have to do something like that because there are a whole bunch of things that it doesn't explain. Um, you know, like doesn't include gravity, for instance. So physicists thought that once they'd filled in all the gaps in the standard model, which is basically what they were doing until 2012 when at CERN, at the LHC, they discovered the Higgs boson. That was kind of like the final little jigsaw piece to put in. They thought that then they'd go to higher energies and some predicted new particles of a um, a theory called supersymmetry would appear And we would carry on this same journey that we've been on for for about 40 years, you know, increase, increase the energy of your colliders and find new particles. Even though the LHC is working amazingly well, that has not happened. And so instead, physicists are looking in other more subtle ways. They're trying to see anything... Any teeny teeny tiny differences from the standard model that might prove that lever by which we then figure out what is going on either past it or beneath it.
0: And where exactly are they? Targeting their search for the little chinks in the armor of the standard model.
3: So one place that they have perhaps been quite successful at CERN is one of the, I suppose, lesser known of the LHC experiments called LHCb, and rather than relying on going to higher and higher energies, they just look at um, the ways in which particles decay, and they look at them in enormous volumes. So particles that we know already can be influenced by potentially whole new particles beyond the standard model. In very very subtle ways, so you look, you compare, for instance, the rate at which um, a particle called a b meson decays into two taus, which are like heavier versions of electrons, versus how often they can com- they decay into two muons. Say that should happen at equal rate once you take into account their mass. And they're finding that it doesn't quite happen at an equal rate. And no one can explain why that is. Physicists will not tell you this is a discovery because it could just be statistical fluke. But they might equally be homing in on something.
2: The um, surprising thing for me, uh, editing some of the stories about these small deviations, is um, how old the data is. The latest uh, data that we read about were five years old. And I have been wondering, what do these physicists do all the time? (laughs) They're sort of resorting to looking back into data from five years ago. Why can't they tell us the answer now?
3: Well, it's because these are extremely rare decays, right? So you're you're searching through billions and billions and billions. They've actually, it's something like, I don't know, 14 quadrillion collisions that they've made at the LHC since it started. And you're looking for extraordinarily rare events in the first place. And then you're trying to compare instances of those extraordinarily rare things with other instances of extraordinarily rare things to see if they differ from each other. Now, obviously, you need to build up a large number and the analysis is very... Very, very, very complex. Um, So they're working their way through it. And yeah, so soon we should be getting the results from LHC Run 2, which finished, finished last year, to feed into that. I was kind of surprised at the time that the Higgs was announced that there was such
0: a media furore in the mainstream press as well as in the specialist press. Would you expect the same thing for a result? that confirms the existence of some new surprise particle.
3: Absolutely. I mean, this would be, you could definitely argue this would be bigger than the Higgs because at the moment we are at this impasse.
2: I think that the um, the discovery of the Higgs uh, was made such a, a commotion about because um, it was very important for scientists to say, look, we built this enormously expensive machine to find uh, what was predicted a very long time ago, and lo, we have found it. And because it was predicted such a long time ago, and countless science journalists um and gifted communicators have spent decades trying to explain what the Higgs mechanism is. We don't just tell you lo we found it; we can also tell you a beautiful story about why and what it is and uh, and it's all wrapped up with a, with with Peter Higgs and the things named after him. He's still alive and he had the foresight to think of this out of his out just his brain you know many years ago, and now it's there. It was such a beautiful story, and it was Rightly celebrated and heavily promoted now, if something surprising were to emerge from one of these studies, it should be bigger news, but it's actually harder to wrap up into a story because there's really not much else that could be said that we have now they'll say we have now got a statistically significant result that these obscure particles don't decay in the ways that they ought to. And theorists think that this indicates that a shadow particle that we can't see, which might be any of these four or five options, might be causing that deviation. And that's not a neat story, and it's an experimental story, but it probably would be bigger than the Higgs.
0: So how long till we get to write the story that says, hey guys, we found the protagonist for that story that we told you
3: about where we didn't know who the protagonist was? This is the thing. It, It may never happen. That's the terrifying thing for physicists, really. But Richard's very impatient. <laughs> as are all editors.
2: <laughs> I'll tell you the other thing I'm impatient about is when can we announce the death of these theories right. like supersymmetry that the LHC was mm. supposed to tell us about? As these other new theories are... Sort of being born but aren't really out of the ground mm.
3: yet. So things things get born very easily in physics, but they really don't die. <laughs> so, so there are an awful, there are other anomalies that, um, that that definitely looked promising as ways to go beyond the standard model, but but actually don't seem to be anymore. But there are always still people who hang on to them because perhaps it was their theory that they came up with. There are, um, you know they've written a dozen theory papers that explain this a potential new particle that accounts for this anomaly. And as soon as you say that anomaly doesn't exist anymore, then they're a bit miffed.
1: So here's something I thought about. You mentioned supersymmetry, Lizzie, as like the theory that won't die. And human evolution actually has a really nice parallel, and it's called multi-regionalism. So how earlier I said most people think that our species emerged out of Africa and populated the rest of the world. Before that, or kind of maybe at the same time, there's this idea that humans emerged in different places around the world. So in Europe, the Neanderthals kind of interbred with Homo sapiens from Africa and gave rise to humans there. And all these species, you know, humans basically emerged all over the planet. And it's been pretty much falsified by a lot of genetic data showing that we trace almost all of our genetic diversity to humans living, who were living in, in Africa. But then we get things like Neanderthal interbreeding. People say, aha! multi-regionalism, or we get something like this Jebel Arhud fossil, they say, aha, you know, African, you know, multi-regionalism. So it's just a it's the theory that that won't die. And I don't know if there's an experiment that will completely falsify it. Maybe supersymmetry is the same way.
3: Yeah, it's basically impossible to falsify, only possible to find.
0: The never ending stories then of human evolution and Supersymmetry. um thank you all for joining me lizzie gibney ewan calloway and richard van norden for all the latest science news and more on all the stories we've been talking about nature.com slash news is the place to go nature.com slash nature slash podcast is the archive of all our lovely audio goodies and we'd love to know what you think of the podcast drop us an email podcast at nature.com or a tweet at nature podcast i'm carrie smith thanks for listening